This is a Soul Fire production. Welcome to The Great Unlearn. Join me, your host, Cal, as we dive deep into understanding and undoing the programming within us. Let's find your inner truth for a life with newfound purpose and freedom. Get ready to question it all in The Great Unlearn. My dear brother, Kyle Kingsbury, he's going to get seated here. He's going to get his microphone all set. There we go. Kyle, one of, uh, is a recurring guest. And as it turns out, was the very first guest on The Great Unlearn. And as is the case, as it turns out, in our history with recording the podcast, we're right around a particular date. We didn't land on it like we did the first time when it was two years to the date that we had actually met. But we are almost three years from that transformational, very first uh, psilocybin journey that we spent together. Damn, three yeah, years. <laughs> yeah, 27th of October. So it's coming up. Uh, so we're recording on the 22nd. So it'll be next week. Um, and so y'all have heard plenty about that. So we don't need to necessarily dig into that. But um, I love the... The divine timing of all that. (laughs) Now, what is interesting to me, at least, is that October 27th, this year, happens to be the start of the Unlearned Experience, the second round. And for those of you that know, the Unlearned Experience is is an online brotherhood that I started. Uh, It's an eight-week 
kind of curated group of experts and guides that I've uh, worked with that really helped me on my journey. So we start round two. Uh, we just finished round one. We just had a retreat here in Austin. It was, I mean, everything and anything that I could have wanted. Um, and through that, I've been able to see what the road looks like ahead uh, with the Unlearned Brotherhood starting in January, which is for those brothers who go through the Unlearned Experience, it's a monthly uh, kind of gathering that we'll do uh, several times through the month where we do a deep dive with some of these guides. Boyd Vardy will be in January. James Fitzgerald, who's been on the podcast as well uh, in uh, February. and then. Our dear brother, Dr. Craig Conover. Nice. Yeah, he'll yeah. blow some minds in March. And so just a little, a little snippet about Dr. Conover. He has not been on the podcast yet, but we've been doing a lot of work together. And I wanna I wanna bring him on after we've kind of started to to look at some of these metrics. But Dr. Conover is the beautiful kind of culmination of someone with uh, a medical background who is deep into biohacking. And he's really out on the fringes and really curious and willing to take risks to optimize our health in, in ways that I think a lot of doctors just aren't either privy to, aren't interested in. Um, so he's been, as I mean, he's been one of the gifts, again, that's come through my relationship with you. And he's, uh, like I said, he's a dear brother. But anyway, uh, welcome today, brother. Yeah, brother. Here we are. This is phenomenal. I'm fucking pumped. Second, I know. You, second you hit me up, I was on my way to Sedona for uh, our third and final fit for service event of the year. And it was pure magic. Just so much medicine across the board. And uh, I knew I'd be coming out uh, on the back end of that wake, just like beaming, ready to, ready to roll. So, Can you share a little bit about um, fit for service and what specifically was going on in uh, Sedona? Yeah. So it's, it's, um, you know, multi-year people can come and go as they please, but you basically, you sign up for at least one trimester where we have a meetup and, um, at the end of the trimester and, you know, there's, it's ongoing education online, uh, Q and a through Instagram lives in a private group, things like that, where we, we meet people where they're at and optimize physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. And with that, it, you know, Aubrey started this after a vision down at spirit quest with Don Howard. It's really morphed into its own thing. Spirit Quest. Spirit quick. Quest is a is a place that's still, even though Don Howard passed uh, about a year ago, it's um its medicine still lives on. It's a place for ayahuasca, wachuma, vilca, different different plant medicines in the Amazon in Iquitos outside of Iquitos, Peru. And uh, he was, you know, just a great mentor and a teacher and someone who held love in the center of his being. You know, which is really um. I mean, I can't, I could talk about the whole podcast about how amazing he is, but really a, a curator of, of deep inner work and experience. And, and as any great master is somebody who never stopped learning and giving himself, you know? So, mm. um, that's what, what this was birthed from this idea, you know, when I was envisioned with Wachuma and, uh, we had an idea of what it would look like. And here we are two years later and this it's become its own thing. You know, it has morphed and grown in ways we couldn't have imagined. And, um, the trajectory is really interesting. You know, it's something I was laughing about in Tahoe in August it was like, that was the, the, the deepest experience of medicine on my end, you know, like my learning, my understanding, not just, uh, you know, as a coach in that role or, or wearing the mask of coach, 
but in my receiving of medicine, my receiving of downloads, my deepening of my understanding of, of my place in the world, my place in fit for service. And, you know, to see that, you know, in Sedona take new leaps, it's like Anahata talks about, it's, it's quantum leaps, you know, this medicine of the cricket gearing up and taking the big jump. It's nonlinear in that approach. And we had 60 new members that were just cracked. Everyone was cracked wide open. So the, the trip to Sedona included uh, ecstatic dance with Porangi, our dear brother, um, workshop on archetypes, masculine, feminine, and then sacred union. And Christine Hassler and, and Steph uh, ran that and just, I mean, it was experiential. I thought I was going to talk and just take the day off and everyone was open wide up, you know, lots of crying. And, and for a lot of people listening, it's like, oh, I don't want to go to some fucking thing and dance and then cry. And it's like this, <laughs> these, they are some of the most healing things you can do. And to get weird and get uncomfortable is actually really important. Like what's going to break us out of thinking and seeing and viewing the world in the box while literally physically moving through that, where is their discomfort? Um, you know, shedding tears, opening our hearts. And then that was followed with breath work by Anahata and, um, that's powerful. I mean, visionary, you know, the first time I did it, I uh, had you know, dozens of plant medicine experience and it was just kind of like, yeah, I'll do this just so I can have uh, another tool to offer to people. Yep. And uh, I was blown the fuck away, you know, really completely visionary, you know, as visionary as, as most psychedelic journeys. And it is a psychedelic journey. It's one of the ways we access altered states of consciousness, which is super important. You know, one of the lost arts of the indigenous and ancient elders that had lived here for many, many thousands of years prior to us is the ability to shift from our normal waking state of consciousness into an altered state. And there's, you know, entire books written about that and many different practices from fasting without food or water for four days, the original vision quest, but breath seems to have a very low barrier to entry and you're in control of it. You know, it's not like take the pill or, um, you know, drink the tea and then buckle up. Like you're in control. You have your foot on the gas or the brake. And that's something that's really empowering for people who go for it is you can really get deep into those corners and crevices and work with the shadow and see a lot of shit that you normally can't see. And that's been, I mean, it was, it was phenomenal. And then we followed that last with our final day on the land with Tim Corcoran doing a soul wander. And Tim's been on my podcast a couple of times. We, for anyone that's interested in that, we actually just did an episode strictly on the soul wander where he basically gives away his template for free. And um, of course you can, you can, anybody who's interested in vision quests and native American wisdom, he's, he's one of the best people I've ever worked with. Just yeah. fantastic. Yeah. That podcast was great. Uh, and listen, we're going to probably mention a lot of different podcasts that you've had recently. Cause we're going to be talking about some of the, the players today, but uh, I'm just going to link to your podcast in the notes rather than these individual. Cause we'll probably talk about four or five of them, but Tim's work in particular is something that I'm super interested in for myself, but also for my boys and yeah. me to go through. And so I was really called. He's doing modern rites of passage, you know, for young men, young women, uh, father, son, survival courses where you actually have to overcome the elements in nature, like learn how to build an igloo in a snowstorm, just all sorts of really, you know, stuff you wouldn't find important. But the thing about fighting for me it gave me equivalency and, and it's, it's kind of like they talk about in fight club. How can you ever truly know yourself if you've never been in a fight? It's to go through something that is challenging and incredibly fearful and come out on the other side and say, oh, look, I survived. No matter what, what happened in that fight, I survived it and I'm better off for it. And this isn't telling people to go out and pick fights like they did in fight club, but there are other ways we can access that. And 
whatever is lurking in the background of our normal waking consciousness, if we have unconscious fears around our environment, around the place we work, around how people treat us or how we think we're viewed by the world, all of that influences our operating system with the decisions we make and how we treat others. So it, it does a lot for us to actually dig into that and look into that. What am I actually afraid of? And then go head first into that storm. And I think that's some of the beautiful stuff about what Tim is doing is, look, you go without food or water for four days and it's guided. It's not just a fucking pick a spot and go, <laughs> go, go hang out for a while, you know? Um, and there's, there's prep. There's a lot of preparation that goes into that eight weeks of prep before you do that. But the, my, my point in saying these things is that it is, it's one thing to say the obstacle is the way it's another to say, I'm going to willfully choose to put myself in a situation where, you know, the more hardcore it is and the more seasoned I am, the more it's going to challenge, um, my physiology, the more I may, my, my psychology, I may think there is a chance I die in this, right. And all rites of passage used to be constructed in that way where it was not just the death of the ego, but the chance of literal death was a possibility. And not all young boys came back from that experience, right? Um, you can, you can say that's, uh, correct in thinking or not, but in either way, we, we had far less men in the world who were operating from the wounded child, who were operating from a traumatized boy who's now wearing a man's body or a grandfather's body or however you want to put that. And I think, um, you know, there's a lot we'll circle back to on that, you know, and it certainly circles in with the whole experience of that week in Sedona, but, um, a lot of medicine there. So I'm, I'm super fortunate to be a part of that as a coach and, and as a member really, you know, cause it is medicine for me as well. You bring up a bunch of great points here for one. Um, I spoke recently, uh, when I had, uh, kind of a tribe cast or squad cast with three of my brothers on here and we talked about a hape ceremony and for these brothers, they'd never done it before. And so I was able to kind of hold the space and shine the light. Like there's this fear that's coming up. They didn't necessarily think they were going to die, but they thought it was going to be awful. I said, okay, sit with that. Right. And then let's do it. And then let's talk about it afterwards. And it's like you to a man, they're like, wasn't as bad as I thought. And once I surrendered, right. Cause you know, that's the big piece of all this. You're out in the wild. Can you surrender to what's, unfolding around you or are you going to try to control like is our nature in this you know kind of waking reality to try to control outcomes and so to surrender and i know we it's kind of an ongoing theme with anything we talk about whether it's plant medicines or you're into you know this deep breath work can we just surrender or do we going to fight yeah uh, tim corcoran talked about that the institute of noetic sciences had studied transformation in any different modality and what they found was there was two things that linked all positive outcome with transformation. One being intention, the second being surrender. And it's one thing to talk about, but you know, in these deeper journeys, we, there is a forced surrender. And it's, it, it's my, really, my bad, we got we, we get some good. guys let's doing, just, blowing some leaves. Yeah, it's just roll good, through it. Um, it's a super important part of life. You know, and it's not to say I give up completely or I don't, I'm not going to have goals or actually go through with intention in the world, but a certain degree of surrender is necessary because as we surrender, we let go of our fear. We let go of the thing that would put blinders on us. And, you know, just like in, you know, pandemic two indoctrination, as we're going to talk about, there are a lot of studies on the brain and neurochemistry. And when we're in a state of fear, 
because we're only thinking of survival, we will surrender our uh, sovereignty to someone that we think can save us. So wave the white flag, authority figure, step in, make this right. And we're no longer thinking clearly. And as it turns out, some of this is by design. And that, that is to get us into a state where we surrender that authority and we say yes to something that we normally wouldn't if we were in a normal waking state of consciousness or certainly in a higher vibratory field of, man, I've just fucking cleaned out the closet and I feel really good and I can think clear, more clear than I ever have in my life. That's a, that's a different end of the spectrum as well. And so in choosing to do the thing that, that, that we're afraid of, we actually begin to gain power over the things that we don't control. And we don't control a lot of it. Right? Like but, almost any of it. Right? But we always have control over ourselves. Mm-hmm. In any given situation, we have control over ourselves. And that's really what the warrior archetype is all about. It is about the, this way of life, what the samurai called do. And it is an approach to life that says yes and always moves forward. And it's very clear in the thinking, right? But it doesn't overthink. It's non-passive. It's not... And it's, it's, it's right aggression, right aggression in the need to break away and clear out what is no longer necessary, right aggression to remove what no longer serves us so we can make space for what is going to serve us. What does wrong aggression look like? Just sort of give people some context here. Well, I mean, I think it's clear, you know, a lot of people, and I'm referring to a book called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover. Um, and I'll give you a link to a guy if you don't want to, there's a lot of information on this, but um, there's a fantastic guy who's broken down these archetypes on his YouTube channel. They're about 12 minute videos. Perfect. Excellent. Excellent. Easy drop in point. And then if you want more, check out the book, which is phenomenal Two Jungian analysts who really took Carl Jung's work and took it a step further. But this idea of the warrior is, is going to use right aggression, you know, and, and in that, um, the, the divine warrior, the noble warrior is going to be able to cut through illusion, to cut through falseness and serve truth where it's necessary and defend a higher ideal. It's not the, you know, the wrong aggression would be to go out and kill another rather than to, I mean, in defense, that's one thing, but to simply find a means to connect. Oh, we're totally right? going to get into and wrong so, aggression with Douglas Murray yeah, and course. madness of crowds. I love yeah, this. Yeah. And, of, and, and, you know, wrong aggressions everywhere. Part of the issue that people have with king and warrior archetypes is all we've seen is shadow king, shadow warrior. When we look out into society, when we look into our family lives, how are we raised? Odds are one of our parents had shadow king, queen, shadow warrior. If you've ever had a violent teacher or a violent parent or, you know, any of these things, that's not right aggression, right? And so when we, when we, when we look through that lens, it's, it's very easy to apply that as the whole and say, this is a problem of patriarchy. This is a problem of men in general, right? But toxic masculinity. Yes. And that, and look, masculinity is not toxic at all. And oddly enough, we see a lot of women serving toxic masculinity. For sure. And it's not, it's not to say that the man or the woman is wrong. It's to say that this thing that we're, we are looking at and applying it to everyone is not simply what we're looking at. We're looking at shadow versions of these archetypes. And if we take a deeper dive into our understanding of the archetype, we'll understand there is a right way to do these things. There's a right way. There's a noble king. There's a peaceful warrior. And in that, especially with the warrior, right aggression is necessary. And I do want to, uh, we will link to Fit for Service in the show notes. And, I, and in this, I'm glad you brought that up because 
so much of the parallels of what you're experiencing, you know, a couple years into this fit for service journey is something that I felt in the very early stages here of the unlearned experience and the unlearned brotherhood and, and kind of my call to serve. Um, but one of the things is, look, I'm not your only teacher guide um, brother in this. There are plenty. That's why I brought in four <laughs> or five teachers for the unlearned experience. It's why we're talking about fit for service. And if you're called to that, go do it. Like I'm going through these journeys too. I have plenty of coaches and people that I rely on to help guide me, you know, through their, through their direction. And so that will be linked to in the show notes. Yeah. So awesome. And then um, I would love to, I mean, I think we get right. You want to get right yeah, into let's it? Let's do it. Yeah. First, let me just preface, you know, um, I think a big, there's probably a lot of listeners listening to this right now that might've listened to David Icke's first, first go recently when quarantine hit on London Real. And uh, it was super off-putting for a lot of people because of the way he relayed the truth. I might, I might even suggest that not many people, not many of my listeners are familiar with David okay. Icke. Okay. And we, look, he may come up, he may not, but I think it's important to point out that how this information is relayed is important. Cause if you go regurgitating what you've heard on this podcast, or you simply look into it for yourself, there is that question mark. And as I've unfolded and learning all of this and being connected to people like Mickey Willis and Del Bigtree and many others that we're going to talk about today, that's a common question that I get asked, especially from fit for service members is how do I teach this? How do I let people know? And the truth is you have to be a willing, there needs to be consent to want to know this stuff and B it needs to be done in a way that where there's a softening. Right. And, and, and what I mean by that is it has to be approachable. It has to be digestible. It can't be doom and gloom. The sky is falling. The fucking world's coming to an end. And I think the mistake David made was 95% of that interview was the doom and gloom. I've been right for 30 years. I've been saying this. And then the last 5%, the 10% was this nugget of what we are as infinite beings, where it was like, damn, <laughs> I've never heard every spiritual book I've ever read. This guy nailed it you know, in one monologue. So he is well-rounded. He's highly educated. He does understand these things. Um, think what you want about his, his way of communication, but what a lot of what he's saying is true. So the, the point I make in saying that is there is a two-pronged approach to this. How deep do you want to go down the rabbit hole in uncovering the way the world is exactly how, how it is? You know, you, you can call that he calls it the cult. You can call it whatever you want to call that uh, corporatocracy, any of these terms that are, you know, off-putting or frightening or yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, that kind of thing. And, and I get it. And uh, so I think in the relay of that message is something that I'm still working on and I'm going to try to do today is like, let's, let's uncover that. Let's not put our heads in the sand like an ostrich. Let's actually see and hear and feel what's actually going on because we do in, in any book on war in any book on strategy in any book on, uh, I mean, fuck uh, Jocko Willink's children's books right? The way of the warrior kid. You have to do reconnaissance. You have to know what the enemy is up to. You have to know how they're playing the game. So that way you have a better strategy on how to approach this. The second prong of this is the light side. It is what we're doing to uncover the work we do on ourselves and the processing and transmuting the alchemy of this information. So it doesn't destroy us. And we're not left saying, why live? Why? You know, like a lot of, there's a lot of people killing themselves right now, a lot more than usual because of the unfolding of these events. And I'm willing to bet that stays. The more this gets uncovered, the more people say like, maybe this was planned. Maybe this whole thing is, uh, by design 
that does not offer me, uh, from an intellectual standpoint, more hope. That offers less. So if, if life is already on the brink of feeling pretty shitty and, you know, you're in a rough spot and then you find out like this whole thing is fucking on purpose, um, that can be a lot to swallow. So it, it's really, you know, what are the tools in the second prong of light that allow us to process all of this health in a healthy way that allow us to see through the illusion and know peace internally. And uh, that's where a lot of the spiritual conversation, altered states of consciousness and things like that come in. So I know we've got limited time today and uh, you're going to take this wherever you want to focus. But I just offer that to people. You know, it is two pronged. And if you stay so focused on the dark, if you stay so focused on the shit, you're going to be missing a key component of how you alchemize that. Beautiful. And I think you've also done an amazing job when, when you're bringing up these conversations uh, on your podcast saying, look, this might be triggering too. Um, so just kind of come in with an open heart and an open mind. Um, in particular, Mickey's work with um, pandemic indoctrination. I had sent it to a friend and I didn't send the link, but I said, hey, check this out. And he responded back, oh, it seems like a bunch of like unsubstantiated da 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 da. I said, well, I don't think you actually watched the full length because that's oversubstantiated, in my opinion. Um, and, and Mickey goes to great lengths with the help of, you know, Dr. David Martin, who you've had on your podcast as well, to really show the kind of the tentacles and the how all this stuff is entangled. And so I, I the invitation is to to listen to what we're kind of bandying about here and then go, if you haven't seen it, go watch and we'll link to it in the show notes. Go watch um Plandemic Indoctrination because it's it's pretty fascinating. It's not just about what we're dealing with right now, but it, when we'll get into some of the other aspects of it as I, I'll play some clips just to give people a little bit more context. But um, yeah, I think, you know, this is stuff that guys like you and I are super curious about and we're open-minded. Like, yeah. And I, I, to be clear, I haven't been super curious about this. It was like, yeah, so what? you know, the world is shit. So what, what am I going to do about it? Well, that, that starts with me and then my family and then my community and outward and however I can reach, let me teach in a way that can help us out. Right. That can, that can help shift our state of viewing the world, but also actually make change. Right. And that, that may flow more in that second prong, but now it's been, it's been made increasingly aware. Like it can't look away any longer. And, uh, you know, when quarantine happened, when a lot of things happened, I had Dr. Zach Bush on the show and it's like, you can't run from nature. It is absurd to think that we could hide in our fucking house and not breathe in that air. You know, a thing I talked about briefly before we start diving into the information is that you're here in Austin. We had for two weeks, a dust storm that hovered around South Texas. It hovered all through the Gulf. That dust came in from the Saharan desert in Africa. If dust can be carried, do you think a fucking virus can be carried across the globe? Many times over, you know, and Dr. Zach Bush talked about that. So why then all of these things, why have we overreacted in a way that we never have before? Well, as it turns out, that was a part of the plan and it's been planned for a while to enact something that would cause us to be in a state of fear that would put us in one place where we get all of our information from in front of the TV. Yeah, and I don't want to get too far ahead here, but what just came to mind was your your podcast with Dr. David Martin talking about how this was really uh, an attempt and really successful attempt to eviscerate the middle class. And if you look around at what's happened, 
the rich have gotten richer and the middle class is pretty much fucked and they live in fear and they don't know what to do. And that's not even talking about the mental health issues for not only adults, but really for kids. And I've talked about this on my podcast. Like I just look at how my kids have been affected in a quote unquote stable home with loving parents and, you know, kind of not necessarily stressing from the, the, um, the effects of this. I've seen the impact it's had on them to be isolated and it's just not, we're social beings. And so, and, and again, this could be uh, an, an epically long podcast and we'll maybe this even turns into, you know, we'll break this into two because I just feel like as we start going down some rabbit We're holes, good. I'm good, brother. I ain't got shit to do today. Okay, so. good. Perfect. <laughs> Me good. too. And if I do, we'll cancel it. Um, let's, well, I'm going to play a clip. I'm back into being, um, oh, you know, as I cue this up, I'd love for you to share what you were playing. Yeah. Um, that's a song I learned from a brother Porangi and I, I hopefully didn't butcher it. <laughs> a former guest on the podcast. <laughs> yeah. Uh, tenemos corazón de guerreros. We, we have the heart of the warrior and, uh, voy a let's go, let's go to the land. Let's go to the water. Let's go to the mountains. Let's go to the sky. Let's go everywhere. All right. Let's bring that medicine. Let's bring that warrior medicine all over. And Tatainti is the sun, you know, Heya Tatainti, Heya Pachamama. It's a head nod. Thank you to the sun. Thank you to the earth. Thank you, Wakantanka, the great spirit. You know, acknowledging these forces that influence and create life here. But let's, let's bring that warrior's heart. You know, Don Howard used to say that the warrior's heart beats as one. Yeah, I get choked up saying it. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's true, you know, because there is that, that element of, well, what can I do? What can we do? What can any of us do? You know, when you see our backs against the wall. But the truth is, you know, and, and even David Icke mentions this. A lot of these people mention this. The further you go down the rabbit hole, the, the means of control are fairly limited. The people that are in charge of this stuff. And because of the way the system is set up, similar to the military of, or any real government agency is, is you're on a need to know basis. So a lot of people who are players in this, the pawns in this have no idea, you know? And so the, the analogy that David uses is you're building a car and you're on an assembly line and you never get to see the car finished. And then one day you go on lunch break and you see the end of the line and you're like, fuck, we're building a tank. I had no idea. I'm just doing my one piece in this part. No idea we were building tanks to kill people, you know? So, so that is, that is a really helpful analogy for people is, is it's not, I mean, we outnumber who's pulling strings at least a million to one, you know, and through our awareness of what's actually happening and through our inner awareness of how to alchemize that and still live in a state of peace. So we make good decisions that that's, that's really the way forward. Once that happens, we're not up against anything we can't overcome. Beautiful. I love that too, because you know, everyone is siloed off in their own little area and you have no idea the impact of that little thing you're doing. And it could be with great intention, but it's part of this greater whole. So here, this, this part, um, yeah, I'll just play it and we'll, we'll chat about it. In 1999, patent on coronavirus started showing up, and thus began the rabbit trail. March 2003, 
panic grips Hong Kong as a deadly new virus sweeps through the city. In 2003, the Center for Disease Control saw the possibility of a gold strike. And that was the coronavirus outbreak that happened in Asia. They saw that a virus they knew could be easily manipulated was something that was very valuable. And in 2003, they sought to patent it. And they made sure that they controlled the proprietary rights to the disease, to the virus, and to its detection, and all of the measurement of it. We know that Anthony Fauci, that Ralph Barrick, that the Center for Disease Control, and the laundry list of people who wanted to take credit for inventing coronavirus, were at the hub of this story. From 2003 to 2018, they controlled 100% of the cash flow that built the empire around the industrial complex of coronavirus. Okay, that's a minute and 15 seconds. And there's a shit ton to unpack there. But I'd love to just start with, you know, my own ignorance around the CDC thinking like, yeah, this is a government agency that's got our back. And I had no idea it was for profit. And boy, are they for profit. And so, I mean, take a stab at any part of that that you'd love to, to get into. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think a first thing to acknowledge here is. Um, and that was uh, Dr. David Martin, by the way. Yeah. When you when you ever when you uncover something like this, like the believability is is if you don't want to believe it, it's going to be hard to accept it. Right. So one thing Tim Corcoran says is to table the inner critic for 24 hours, let it seep in and then bring the inner critic back online. But it, it, it looked look no further than follow the money. You know, there, there is a paper trail. There are thousands of paper trails that really expose the nature of this. And, and yeah, the CDC is 100% a for-profit company. This is the same company that earlier on in the film, they show an advertisement on TV for DDT being sprayed at people while they're eating food. They're, you're at a picnic. DDT, it's safe. You know, eat your lunch in front of the spray can, you know, and just getting pumped out. And then, oh, wait a minute, that actually fucks people up really, really bad. Maybe this chemical should not be being used in our food supply and around humans. And it's only after the fact, right? Well, the CDC put that ad out decades earlier. You know, they're, they're, they're in on a lot of this stuff. Mm. And, and it, is, it is a money game for them to be involved in this. But the idea what David's really exposing here is the CDC's whole control over this, not only the, the creation of a novel coronavirus and, and look again with Ralph Barrick and people like that, it's like it, it in his job to create a more uh, potent version of coronavirus, he easily could have just been thinking of this as a way to potentially meet a threat that could come on later on in life, right? Like he could have yes. thought he's just doing a good job. This is in the, in the essence of science so that we can understand this better. And then if in case something happens with an outbreak from nature, we now have a means to solve that. Like it, it but it is the equivalent then of saying like, we're going to create a super venomous snake just so we can have the anti-venom for the super venom, venomous snake that doesn't exist in nature. It, it, viruses will evolve quickly. So there is more potential there than the snake that ends up with the super venom. But at the same time, um, it raises a lot of questions, you know, and, and this is the tip of the iceberg. You know, something that David talked about on the podcast is there are thousands of patents that have to do with coronavirus. Thousands. I think he said over 5,000. Was <clears throat> yeah. that right? Yeah. And, and the CDC owns them. The CDC has patents on all means of testing for coronavirus. 
and uh, all ways of creating a test for coronavirus. So literally controlling the entire game. No one, no third party can look into this and say, hey, I think the test is wrong or I think it's inaccurate. Um, initially, you know, all the cases around corona weren't even being tested for. They were basing it off of symptoms, which loosely looks a lot like other issues people have. And with comorbidity and things like that, you know, it's, it's something that, that uh, medical doctors had talked about, you know, on, on Tony Robbins, there were seven medical doctors, two from Stanford, two from the Cleveland Clinic, uh, the senator from Minnesota. And they're saying like, if you die, if you get, if you have coronavirus in your system, test positive for that, and you get hit by a bus and die, how do they label that death? You didn't die from the bus impact. Clearly that had nothing to do with it. You died from coronavirus. So the inflation of these stats and the ways that they've really made this thing out to be bigger than it is. Um, when you come to understand these things and you watch it, it's, it's undeniable. Yeah. And I think um, some of the, the statistics now that they're talking about healthy, or I guess what, what the age range would be, you know, kind of any, anybody un, under the age of 65, I think maybe 70, like the, the, the mortality or the, uh, I don't want to say it. The survival rate is 99.9 something. Yeah. It's, and it's 99.76 across the board that you live through this. So why did we shut down the economy? Why did we go indoors? And I think that's where we start to unravel a little bit more. Yeah. Um, one of the other pieces, and by the way, the, the, these are clips from um, Mickey Willis's uh, documentary pandemic indoctrination. Uh, this is a little bit about Ralph Barrick and this was fascinating to me, this kind of like one, <laughs> David just paints a perfect picture. So I invite you all to pay close attention to this one. Ralph Barrick is the researcher at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, who's famous for his chimeric coronavirus research. In 2002, there was a recognition that the coronavirus was seen as an exploitable mechanism for both good and ill. On April the 25th, 2003, the U.S. Center for Disease Control filed a patent on the coronavirus transmitted to humans. Under 35 U.S. Code Section 101, nature is prohibited from being patented. Either SARS coronavirus was manufactured, therefore making a patent on it legal, or it was natural, therefore making a patent on it illegal. If it was manufactured, it was a violation of biological and chemical weapons, treaties, and laws. If it was natural, filing a patent on it was illegal. Then either outcome, both are illegal. In the spring of 2007, the CDC filed a petition with the Patent Office to keep their application confidential and private. They actually filed patents on not only the virus, but they also filed patents on its detection and a kit to measure it. Because of that CDC patent, they had the ability to control who was authorized and who was not authorized to make independent inquiries into coronavirus. You cannot look at the virus. You cannot measure it. You cannot develop a test kit for it. And by ultimately receiving the patents that constrained anyone from using it, they had the means, they had the motive, and most of all, they had the monetary gain from turning coronavirus 
from a pathogen to profit. I mean, that's some powerful shit. I think just, just basically speaking, it, it's not patentable, but for some reason they're able to get that through. I know he talks about it, but um, you want to, let's wade into this area here because again, it, it speaks to how, how are these things happening, Kyle? How are they able to do this? Yeah, I, I think if we, we, one of the reasons why this became more acceptable to me was a long understanding through health and wellness, that same question. Who's looking out for us? Why, are, why was DDT allowed in the food supply? Why is, is glyphosate now allowed in our food supply for Monsanto, purchased by Bayer, one of the biggest pharmaceutical companies, also one that was around in Nazi Germany? Why, why is that allowed to be in our food supply, a known carcinogen? On a lesser degree, why is, are things like MSG and aspartame allowed in pretty much, you know, aspartame's in every diet drink, um, chewing gum, it's everywhere. Who's looking out for us? Now, other countries that actually give a shit about their people, some of the Nordic countries, they actually have a ban on stuff like that. Aspartame's not allowed. It's a known neurotoxin when the body's core temperature goes up past a certain degree. So if you're working out, you're in a sauna, you're in hot yoga you're going to reach that threshold where now you have a neurotoxin in your body. Um, I I brought this up on the podcast with Mickey on my podcast, but as it turns out, our government's for hire and lobbyists look no further than the paper trail. Lobbyists contribute boatloads of money, you know, and, and big pharmaceutical is number one. Big pharma is higher than two and three by far, by far. And so their ability to get stuff in, their ability to make things happen, it's, it's influence. People are just saying yes over greed to allow things in, to happen that should not be happening. Give us a little entree into um, some of the stuff that, that you've come to understand about Bill Gates. Yeah. I mean, first, first of all, I think it's important to, to take a step back and look still at medicine in general. Right. One of the things that, that uh, David E. Martin talks about, and, and it, not just David E. Martin, you know, guys like Dr. Joe Dispenza, Dr. Bruce Lipton, who wrote The Biology of Belief, is that at a very young age, per, perhaps our entire lives, we've surrendered some level of sovereignty over to big government, other authority figures, including the men and women in white lab coats, right? The, the scientists, the doctors, as the people who make us healthy, right? We even, we even take responsibility off our backs with the belief that they will fix us. And that's simply not the case. It's not the case at all. Um, but, you know, we, we, we look further into that and it's like, it, it really has become some sort of a medical mafia with how things are. In fact, you know, at this conversation with Paul check, the um, child protective services came in during his birth with Angie because they had refused vaccines. And Paul being Paul was, you know, adamant about it and asking about side effects and none of them knew any of the side effects, couldn't, couldn't speak to any of that. And, um, child protective services comes in, right. And they make him leave the room and they talk to Angie and, and really question her on, is he calling the decision? Is it your decision? We really want to do this. You need to do this and really hammered her on it. And she said, well, we'll do it later. We're not going to do it today. And so it's one of the ways that they can use a strong arm technique to force you into making certain decisions. And of course, there's laws now passed in California and other places that don't allow you to have personal sovereignty over your own body or your children's bodies. 
I want to give a little shout out to McLean McGowan and her Mother the Mother podcast. For those that don't know, the phrase to mother the mother is the role and the intention of a birth doula. How do I know that? Well, my wife Peyton has been a birth doula for a number of years, so I've seen firsthand the benefits and the beauty that a birth doula can bring to an entire family. So when I saw the title for McLean's podcast, I knew right away it was something special, and I was right. For those that want to know more, Mother the Mother is a space for women to gather energetically, sister to sister and mother to mother. On the podcast, there's a focus on the power of mothers and the sharing of real life experience of pregnancy, birth, and most importantly, the postpartum shift. This is a crucial time for the new mother to not only heal physically, which I think we all understand, but also emotionally and spiritually. Many aspects of these major life transitions are regarded as negative or challenging at best in our current society. You're going to hear stories of conception, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, owning a business, conscious partnership, alternative healing modality, spirituality, medical freedom, sovereignty, and a bunch more. Does that tickle your fancy at all? I thought so. Be sure to check out Mother the Mother podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks, y'all. Think about that for a sec. Just sit with that. And that, that goes pretty deep. You know, so, so when we look at a guy like Gates, who has already been in trouble for antitrust with Microsoft, who strong-armed his partner, Paul Allen, which is shown in the video, while he was going through chemotherapy to liquidate and empty out his ownership in Microsoft. Um, not a good character. So he gets, you know, this, uh, this, this campaign for public image, you know, and he's dancing around like a goofball and, um, you know, he becomes a philanthropist, right? Right in the wake of this um, big trial, he decides he's going to do it for the people. He's going to be the guy that invests all of his millions of dollars back to the people. And of course they, they include other videos. Now in talking with Mickey, who's become a good friend, they had four hours of footage on Gates that they, that they had to trim down to 20 minutes. They could have done multiple documentaries on him alone. And you know, what they show is this, this act of being a philanthropist and caring about the people and wanting to save humanity. And meanwhile, he has three Ted talks on overpopulation being the most critical issue with natural resources and how we need to limit population and control the population. And, you know, then there's video of him bragging about the greatest investment he ever yes. made was in vaccines. And so 20 X now I've done a fair amount of investing. 20 X is a unicorn and he has, is it 10 billion he invested? Yeah. And so you having been in that game, I don't know anybody, no matter how wealthy, that's going to throw 10 billion at a particular stock or a commodity or any, any 10 billion is, I mean, you have to know that's going to return. So think about it this way. If I created a supplement and I had um, an entire industry that lobbied Congress on my behalf and, and every other government in the world to make, to force you to take my supplement, mm. would that bring about a pretty good return? Mm. If it's guaranteed, it's going to sell. If it's guaranteed that everyone on planet earth has to take it, that guarantees the return on investment. Right? Mm -hmm. So, but again, I don't, $10 billion, like I, no one comes to mind, even $1 billion where you're like, I believe in this so much 
that I'm going to put $10 billion into it. And what does he get? 200 billion back. And, and as they go on in the show, they are guinea pig testing on tribes and poor people and the impoverished people in countries like India and Africa, 1.6 million a year. And these people have every fucking side effect in the book. You know, you, when you watch the movie, you can't unsee it. And the part that brought me to tears and talking to Mickey, just bringing it up is you see a mom with several children that have been harmed from the new polio vaccine. And it's causing more paralysis than polio did. And this kid falls out of his chair and the mom without flinching picks him up and just sets him back upright. That's her life now. And she, it's, it's, she's not even moved by it. It's just, this is how it is. Let me sit you back up and go about my business. So they are causing harm and you know, how much harm that's determined based on a lot of other factors, but and, and, and really with the whole vaccine issue for a lot of people that are, that are scratching their heads and oh, this guy's anti-vaxxer, that kind of thing, you know, it's, it, Dale Bigtree brought up a couple of points on my podcast. Number one, if you were born 1986 or earlier, you had 10 to 12 vaccines in your entire childhood from birth to 18 years old, 10 to 12 of them. Kids now get 72 vaccines by the time they reach adulthood. And then more when you're an adult. So it's not any one thing in particular. It is the onslaught of all these things. And it's not just the vaccines. It's what's in our food. It's what's allowed into conventionally grown farming. Everything that we consume and, and you know, EMF, the whole gauntlet of what affects our antenna, what affects our DNA. And that's really what David Icke points to in the DNA wars, like as a means of control, as a means of weeding out people and, and you know, we can dive into why behind that too, but really it, um, it boils down to uh, them knowing this is a way we create wealth and this is a way that we prevent people from reproducing. And, you know, Gates is no stranger to the argument of overpopulation and he's actually doing things consciously to prevent that. HPV done in India made women infertile. That, chew on that. His father was connected uh, and Mickey brought this up on the podcast to Margaret something, the head of mm-hmm. the uh, head of Planned Parenthood. And they had a Negro program. This is not my terminology. This is yours. I want to be clear about that. Yes. They had the Negro program where 75% of all Planned Parenthoods went into black neighborhoods. They went into Mexican neighborhoods to prevent those people, to prevent minorities and people of color from reproducing. This wasn't done for feminism or for women's rights or for women's ability to control when and if they had babies. It had everything to do with limiting the growth of minority populations and keeping, you know, the pure, uh, uh, what is the term for it in Germany? The, uh, you know, the, the, the Aryan, Aryan race. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, and you, this is eugenics, right? And his yeah, dad, Bill eugenics. Gates' dad was, was balls deep into the eugenicism or whatever you call it. Yeah. And you look, I mean, it is a concept that was first coined from uh, one of, so when Darwin realized okay. how, how people evolve, how things evolve on the planet, there was an idea, can we make it better? I mean, if you think that's bullshit, artificial selection is how we have dogs, right? It's why I can have an 18 pound Chihuahua Shih Tzu mix. And in my previous dog was 170 pound English Mastiff. Can we engineer the perfect human? And can we remove all of the mutts? Can we limit their ability to reproduce? And look, this is a lot to gnaw on. I get it. And it's just barely, I don't even think they touch on that. You know, 
the brilliance of Mickey was not to include everything, right? Yeah. It's to, to, to not throw the kitchen sink at people, to let people get some breadcrumbs in the first documentary and then get a full course meal with Plandemic 2 indoctrination. But that's still, there's still work that's ongoing, you know, and, and as we dive into the madness of crowds and Douglas Murray's work, a lot of this has overlap, you know, it has overlap in what's being taught to our children. It has overlap through the narrative and the means of controlling the masses through the stories that were told through the media. And a lot of, a lot of Mickey's upcoming films are going to really address that. So, um, as, as, as I'm talking now, I'm, I'm privy to some of this other information that then I recommend books and things like that for people to dive in further. So you don't have to just take my word for it and think that's just some fucking whack job who beats a drum and sings uh, opinion. This is what I've come to know over the last six months you yeah, know, in it, asking questions. Well, and I think, um, you know, I'm going to have Dr. Thomas Cowan on uh, upcoming and he'll, you know, probably unpack some of the, the, you know, vaccines, autoimmunity and kind of the origins of that stuff. But one of the things that that was startling to me, again, like claiming ignorance, I just didn't know that uh, Reagan had signed, uh, and I don't remember the exact bill, but it was at the, at the nudging slash recommendation of Anthony Fauci that gave vaccine companies basically financial immunity. There was no penalty, you know, and it was probably billed to Reagan as, look, like we need them to iterate and come up with these things. And if there's this risk that they're going to get sued, then they're not going to do it. So it's like, okay, that, like, that makes sense. Yeah. The, I think the idea behind it was, you know, we're not going to see innovation against disease unless we give them some degree of um, a free pass. And you know, again, this is 1986. So 10 to 12 vaccines prior to that, now 72 a year. So it's not that they're going to develop new things just as that, but you're going to be forced to take these new things. CDC is recommending now what is on your plate, what your kid's going to have to get shot in their bodies. And, you know, for Reagan to give that immunity, back in the day, if somebody, if, if a CEO of a company put out something, a pharmaceutical that hurt people, they went to jail for it. They didn't just get a slap on the wrist or a fine. They actually, they actually went to jail for it. That's not the case now. And more importantly, that or equally importantly to that is who pays for it in this, mm. in this court that they've created, a vaccine injury court, which is far harder to go through and come out on the other side having proved injury from vaccine. They do everything they can to say, no, that happened from X, Y, and Z, and it has nothing to do with this. Even though as a parent, you know, you fucking know every little idiosyncrasy of that child as they develop. You take them into the doctors, they come back, they get a fever that doesn't break for three days and they no longer speak. That's the, we're not connecting dots. We're not jumping too far out of reach to make that claim. And yet, even with all of the loopholes and stuff that you got to jump through to get paid from vaccine court, they've paid nearly $5 billion since the vaccine injury court was invented. And they are who? The taxpayers. Fucking A. Us. We pay. I'm surprised they fight injuries. so hard because it's not even their fucking money. Yeah. Well, it's image. Maybe that's it's image, that's, right? That's right? I mean, the fact that we can say up until now, close to $5 billion has been paid out. And that is a gross underpayment of injury, especially with Thomas Cowan and, and um, autoimmunity and the issues that we see now facing the masses. Right. It's not to say that we are not affected just because we don't have autism. All of us are affected in one way or another. I'm going to play this next clip because it kind of talks... It talks about the, the girls in India that were given the vaccine and kind of uh, goes down that rabbit hole a little bit. 
you can imagine how the manipulation of the media by the media, the manipulation of public opinion by leaders from all political parties unanimously saying, we want a vaccine. And the worst thing is they are taken as philanthropists. Whereas what this actually is, is the acquisition of political and financial power. And I think the second most populous country with 1.3 billion people is going to be a good base for pharmaceutical companies to make a killing and also kill a lot of people in the process. Yes, I just find it a pity that we haven't been able to get any benefit for the girls who suffered, you know. It's so terrifying. He's, he's talking about the girls in India who were given this this vaccine, I think he'll talk about it later here. As to what they're actually doing with the world. We're taking things that are, you know, genetically modified organisms and we're injecting them in little kids' arms. We just shoot them right into the vein. A 2018 scientific study released in the International Journal of Environmental Research and Public Health concluded that over 490,000 children in India developed paralysis as a result of the gate-supported oral polio vaccine that was administered between the years of 2000 and 2017. Using all the usual sleight of hand, U.S.-based media and fact-checkers rushed to bury the story. But thanks to the meticulous work of a team of Indian researchers and doctors, the inconvenient truth lives on the NIH.gov website. It's my honor to introduce Bill and Melinda Gates. Without any medical training, Bill and Melinda Gates founded the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunization, through which they fulfill their agenda to vaccinate the world. The foundation has been sued by the governments of some of the poorest and most vulnerable nations for causing serious harm through experimental vaccine programs. If you just look at healthcare workers around the world, they deserve to get the vaccine first. You know, here in the United States, really, it's going to be black people who really should get it first and many indigenous people. Vac I mean, it's just, it's so insidious. She's like, it's just, it's, it's, it's touted as we're going to take care of these underserved. Like they're going to be the first ones to get it where all the while there's so much injury that's already happened, but there's no accountability. Like they're not allowed in India anymore. Is that correct? I remember hearing that in your podcast. I, I think so. And, and, but then at the same time, I think they follow with now here they are again, right? Like a, due to parliament changing in India and the current state of the pandemic, if you want to fucking call it that, um, there, there now is an opportunity where, you know, that the, through, through other companies, of course, are allowed in, right? So this, this, uh, whoever is the developer, whether it's Moderna or somebody that comes in on the back end of this to develop a vaccine that is going to be welcomed. And, and in other countries, it's going to be pushed. And we'll circle back on that when we get into politics and what that means for us, because there is one side of this coin that's going to push this on us. And there's one side that isn't. And I just want to be, um, we'll, we'll leave that as a teaser trailer. Um, and menace of crowds can lead us into that. Yeah. You know, one of the things I picked up also from, from your, um, conversation with Dr. David Martin was what's really, you know, like, why is the, the right kind of opening up and the left was like shutting everything down. And I think what's happening is 
they're, they're setting, they're trying to set Trump up for this epic fail. Like, look at what you've done to the middle class. While, I mean, while he's ready, you know, to come out with a quote unquote vaccine. And again, I don't think I would ever take it unless it's proven to work. But there was another point within that if a vaccine does come about, someone's waiting in the wings to squash it, correct? Yeah, David David points that uh, that out on my podcast as well as on London Real. Um, the whole thing has been politicized. So like, why does politics play a part in this? It, it, it from the jump, has been a part of this. Um, you know, I think, I think for, for whatever reason, you know, and, and I always have to qualify myself. It's like <laughs> to even talk about it this way, but I'm super progressive. I was born and raised in the Bay area. I have gay and lesbian friends. My, uh, some of my family members have, um, you know, dated same sex relationships and that's all been awesome. My marriage was open for a certain point in time for a couple of years. Uh, I'm into plant medicines. Like th- these are all very, cons- you know, non-conservative things, very progressive things. And then at the same time, when we look to places like New York and California, we see the most strict laws when it comes to personal sovereignty. And, and maybe that's the explanation is that conservatives, for whatever reason, believe more in their own personal freedom. And we see that in Texas, you know, I, this thing was going on, you know, mid quarantine. And I went to see, um, a functional medicine doctor out in Marble Falls. And I showed up and I had my mask and she was like, oh, sweetie, you don't need that. And I was like, good. I thought it was weird that everyone in Austin has it on, but now I get it. Austin is a blue city. And here we are, you know, an hour outside of town and not my doctor, none of the nurses and no one in there has a mask on. And everyone is fucking cool with it. It's like, we're not afraid of this and see through it as something else is happening here on a grander vision to make this thing a part of our living experience. You know, even the mass thing alone, the, the, there's been so much science that's come out of this. Yeah, but share a little, but, but, but one, of the, one of the things that makes me laugh, and again, uh, maybe you can link to this, this, is a great point that they bring up. Seven medical doctors on Tony Robbins all agree masks don't work. The K95 mask is designed to filter out a certain micron size of particulate, meaning mostly they will get bacteria but a virus is smaller than five microns. Coronavirus itself, COVID-19 is smaller than five microns, which means the best mask on the planet doesn't work. Now, are you required to wear a K95 mask just so we're actually arguing the same point? No. I could fucking wrap my shirt around my face. I wore a bandana for a while, which if if I sneezed and didn't cover my mouth, moisture would come out. Droplets of my spit would come out through that bandana. Right. Like we, we see people, these, you know, and there's art and all this other stuff. And it's like, you know, and and that's leaving aside the discussion around, um, hypoxic air rebreathing or the fact that this thing, if it's not washed, is going to collect more. Explain hypoxic air. So where we, we have a lack of oxygen, CO2 is rising and we're rebreathing the same air. Kind of like, um, you know, someone with asthma would rebreathe into a paper bag, not to that extent, but if we're getting less oxygen, that's weakening our immune system. So it's actually increasing the chances of us getting sick. If you get a flu vaccine, uh, Del Big Tree just had a doctor on his podcast and it's a super short 24 minute podcast on the twindemic, which I linked to in my podcast with Dell. Got to do some searching for it, but they talked about, you know, the media really promoting this twindemic. Never have we seen before coronavirus and the flu hit us at the same time. And it's all nonsense. If you get a flu vaccine, this is all to push the flu vaccine. If you get a flu vaccine, 
you have a 24% or maybe a 36% chance, higher likelihood of getting coronavirus. <laughs> I don't mean to laugh, but what the fuck? Right? And that, that's, I mean, everywhere you go, get your flu vaccine. We'll give it away for free. It's 20 bucks at Costco. They got a little stand at the front. Right when you walk into Costco, $19.99, pay them in cash, get your shot and go about your shopping. It's complete nonsense. And there's been, there's been years where out of the 12 most common strains of flu virus, they only put about three. The three they guess will be the most prominent that year. There's been years they've missed completely anything that hit hard across the globe. They've missed the, the biggest ones completely. They had three of the, the least infectious versions of the flu. The last time I had the flu was when I got a flu vaccine in 2012. I was going to say, I've never gotten it, the flu vaccine or the flu. And it's like, I mean, maybe I'm going to, I'm going to get it this year because I just spoke that into the universe. But yeah, to your point, I don't mean to cut you off. Like when we go through these things, and this is what Dr. Thomas Cowan talks about in vaccines, autoimmunity, and the nature of childhood illness. Back in the day, they used to have chicken pox parties. Your kid gets chicken pox celebrate that everyone with a kid in the neighborhood comes over. So they all get it and they all go through this like a rite of passage for your health. These, this stressor, when you survive it, not only prevents you from ever getting chickenpox again in your entire life, it also lowers different forms of cancer, 50% less chance of cervical cancer in women, 10% drop in the chances for heart disease in men and women. You, you have the, it is, you are strengthened by going through this. And it, what is the best way to, to go through anything? Whatever nature serves our way is to actually be healthy in the first place and then actually get it to rest, to move through that. So you don't get it again. You build immunity to that and your body learns what that is. Now, of course, Thomas Cowan's completely shifted gears on this and has his new book, The Contagion Myths, which I got to dive into. Um, it's his thought that that's not even the case, that those, these aren't transmitted person to person. And, and that's, that's a whole different discussion we'll have to have with. Dr. Thomas Cowan. And but, that'll be a big part of my conversation. With yeah. Him. And, if, and you know, I just want to know that I'm, I'm aware of that, you know, what his stance is now and that differs. But at the same time, just looking through that old uh, methodology and the thought process around these things, it's no different than me saying yes to doing squats or the ice bath. Like when I say yes, and I willfully challenge myself, my body responds, the physiology responds, the psychology responds, and I'm better off for having done it. The right. same after thing after squats, you may feel less vital right after, but as you recover, you become stronger. Yeah. It's and just intuitive. And that, that's, that's the way we used to look at these things and currently have not. We want to run from everything. We want to hide or we address it with a shot that, you know, depending on your genetics and how much you sweat and things like that, it may not even work when the disease finally does come around or something else can hit you. And while you have a weakened immune system from these, uh, different adjuncts and things that they add into it, you're more prone to getting sick from something else. And one, one other point on the, the mask um, whole notion is a recent podcast Aubrey had with Sean um, Stevenson. Stevenson. Yeah. They talked about the back in the early 1900s when the doctors would visit the super sick, they would have these masks on. They look like cones. The, the masks weren't to protect them from the germs. They were, they had like <laughs> herbs and essential oils, whatever the version was back then. So the doctors would be breathing in this good air, these good vitamins, minerals, whatever, to strengthen their immune system. They weren't afraid of the germs. So again, it's like, I think Sean has done an amazing job of showing 
where this all originated from. And again, this is one of the areas where it originated from and how it's been bastardized to, to, you know, to serve some potential bad actors. And Dr. Cowan, uh, one of the things that I particularly love about him is that he has said, you know what, I had that wrong, or I've had this, I've been wrong. And here's how I've been wrong. And this is like new information comes to light. And he's one of the few guys who's willing to stand up and say, I fucked that one up. Yeah. You know, with good intention, but I was wrong. And here's why, what I think it is now. And I think that's all we can ask people is be curious, be willing to change your mind based upon new information. Yeah, brother. Now, you know, I love this part right here. This is, this was a bit eye opening for me on the Rockefellers. Um, they're always touted as like a super successful family. Look at all the amazing stuff. The Rockefeller Center. Mickey does an amazing job of just kind of going through how they've moved through our country. But here's just one little clip about them and the CIA. There's been a battle to control disseminated information. In the early 1900s, oil tycoon John D. Rockefeller took control of every newspaper and news editor of his era. He became America's first billionaire, paving the way for the power-hungry ever since. Thus began the gold rush for the modern world's most precious resource, the narrative. Do you have any people being paid by the CIA who are contributing to a major circulation American journal? During a Senate committee investigation, it was revealed that the CIA had been conducting a covert operation to infiltrate and control U.S. media. They called it Operation Mockingbird. We do have people who submit pieces to American journals. Do you have any people paid by the CIA who are working for television networks? This, I think, gets into the kind of details, Mr. Chairman, that I'd like to get into in an executive session. Over 3,000 CIA-contracted and trained operatives were placed in key positions within top media outlets. Posing as editors and journalists, these well-paid actors never dared to question the effect of their lies on the world beyond their cozy studio. How often does the CIA manipulate the media in this way? It this is, a, this, this is John Stockwell who's answering this question. He's a former CIA officer. Goes beyond your wildest imagination. Setting up student organizations so they could draw radical students in. 5,000 university professors co-opted to help the CIA manipulate people's minds. Journalists in the U.S., including big-name journalists, co-opted to function routinely to help the CIA put out stories and biases to the world. <laughs> I mean, again, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there with the Rockefellers. Um, we're seeing that happen today. We're seeing that with, if anyone's seen The Social Dilemma, um, Mickey certainly talks about it in the documentary here. Um, just these organizations who have bad actors within them that are trying to, whether it's the protests that turn into riots, it's all, um, you know, Antifa, right? They're, they're, they're the anti-fascists. But generally, and Douglas Murray does an amazing job of, of explaining this, they're pretty good at using fascism to get their point across. And so we'll dig into Douglas Murray here in a moment, but 
like listening to that clip, like what comes up for you? Well, that was, that was more on the CIA than the Rockefellers. And, and uh, I think the, the clip with the Rockefellers that really blew me away was, you know, John D. Rockefeller strikes oil becomes America's first billionaire. And at a time when that, you know, the dollar was actually worth a damn. And uh, he takes that. And of course, you know, standard oil is the big thing. You can't have a monopoly. So he creates Chevron, Exxon and Mobile out of that company. He, they also own Bank of America. They start diving into other industries. And one of the things they do is they dive into the American Medical Association and purchase it. In doing so, in not purchasing it, but outright, but then being the number one donor and contributor, he controls the narrative through what's allowed in their medical textbooks. So doctors being trained now are trained to view anything from the natural world as alternative, a word they created non-functional, just alternative, right? Like, oh, that's not the, that's not the way. And doctors who believe in, in herbs and the essence of nature and the plants that we can use to resolve and remedy illness are then outed. And they show doctors being handcuffed and thrown in, in jail for this. And there's a, a little piece, I think, before this is they see that their petroleum can be used to make pharmaceuticals. And so they've flooded the market with this. And in response to that, plastics, everything else, right? And and of course, that also goes hand in hand with the green movement and big agriculture. Uh, a lot of these are used, you know, similar. You know, it, it's kind of like if you had um, people have used the analogy that you know, it, all of humanity fighting itself is like one tree with the branches fighting them fighting themselves. But I think of like big agriculture and big pharmaceutical and big oil all on the same hand. You know, so why would the medical or scientific community point? To something like DDT or point to something like glyphosate, if it's on the same hand, it's not. It's not going to do that. It couldn't. It couldn't point a finger at itself, even in that standpoint, right? And and they unpack a lot on this. There's there's whole documentaries on Rockefeller to really understand more about that. But again, Mickey gives breadcrumbs on this that are undeniable. They're absolutely undeniable with the CIA's infiltration of education, you know. And again, uh, Douglas Murray does a fantastic job of relaying this information in his book, The Madness of Crowds. He's an excellent guest on Rogan's, but really just portraying what has happened through society, through our education system. And other brilliant people like Jordan Peterson have been talking about this for years and what that actually looks like when we limit our ability to use free speech, when we limit our ability to speak about certain scientific studies, like the study of gender, the study of evolutionary biology, and dismiss them. Um, that is taking a narrative one step further and actually limiting what people are able to say. And that not only goes against our constitutional rights, but that these are the seedlings of socialism and communism. And that that's a warning that he's been really focused on for some time. And Douglas Murray now, he doesn't mention it in the book. I mean, he, he does mention uh, a bit, I think it is an interlude on Marxism, but you know, he, he's, he's studying as much of this as he can revolutions as much of this as he can. And again, like why, why, well, why would top down create that? It's, it's divide and conquer. It's the oldest trick in the book. It is the ability to set people against one another. And in part that plays into like, if you understand this, how does that play into our recovery? How does that play into our rebuilding? And so the light side of that is the softening so that we can hear each other. It's the thing that Brett Weinstein called for when he was surrounded by a mob on mm -hmm. campus, right? To be heard that a dialectic that I'm going to listen to you to better understand you. And in doing so, you're going to listen to me to better understand me. And of course, as he says this, it's not a debate. I'm not trying to be right. I'm not trying to prove you wrong. 
you just hear, fuck you, you know, anger and, and outlash against somebody who is not a racist, somebody who is very progressive, somebody who has the student's interest in mind, has been a professor there for many years, and he's outed. He gets canceled. And his story a little bit of is at Evergreen College. I believe it's in Oregon, somewhere in Oregon. Uh, Washington, I believe. Okay. So it's in the, the, the Pacific Northwest. But they had a, a day that they, um, they uh, celebrated every the, year. The day of absence, I believe, where African-American students and teachers would take the day off and the community at large would witness their contribution. So they'd Beautiful. Say, man, my teacher's not here today. He's my favorite professor. She's my favorite professor. Uh, the kid, you know, like that's, that's my best friend who's not here today. And I want to acknowledge that. And it was a beautiful voluntary as well. To that's make a that key clear. point. Voluntary. voluntary. So, you know, if you were an African-American student and you were like, fuck it, I want to, I need, I don't want to miss a day of school. I want to get good grades. I need to know this or finals are approaching or any other thing, reason to go, or even just saying like, I don't want to participate in this. It was voluntary. Right. And then one year they decided to change the rules and it was mandatory. Right. Yeah. So they, before that they included all people of color as a voluntary okay. thing. Right. And so they, they had the day of absence for all people of color to celebrate all minorities and their contribution as well. And then they changed it to white people must not show up for this day. And you know, of course, Brett Weinstein seeing the absurdity of that, the fact that it had moved from voluntary to involuntary as a command. He was like, I'm a fucking professor here. I came to teach and I'm coming to teach today. And if I'm not teaching, cause I have no students in my class, I'm going to learn and prep for teaching. I'm not leaving the campus. I'm coming to school today. And he had a mob show up around, you know, uh, either his classroom or his office. And it didn't go well. It didn't go well. And there, thanks to modern media and our ability to capture things on film, everyone with their camera phones up recording this, it showed the absurdity of that. Because here's a guy who's staying as calm and collected as he can, who really wants more than anything to be able to connect, to be able to get through and say like, listen, I'm on your side. I fought. I've, I've, I'm, I'm trying to help. I'm trying to teach in a way that is inclusive. I'm trying to do things in a way and, and never at any point. I mean, you wouldn't live there. Other than that, you wouldn't be a professor at a, at a school that's that progressive if you weren't in line with it in some, in some level. And um, the way that shakes out and panned out is, is, you know, one of the failures that we're up against with our modern culture. And, and in that, you know, him being forced to leave and many other examples of that, people being forced to leave from high positions uh, due to cancel culture. And not in right thinking, simply in looking for a target to take out, looking for someone to inflict their power upon. And it's, it is not done in a way of trying to understand more. It's not done in a way, it's, it's done in vengeance. It's done in a way of, of hurt and harm. You know, and I think that's something to, to point out as well. Anahata talked about this before. Like, as I communicate truth, and this could just be in relationship, it could be with your kids. You have to ask yourself if it's harmful or hurtful in the way that you say it, right? And the reason for that is something that Mary Margrave had talked to me, talked to me about with anger. If you're in a state of rage, you're aiming to destroy. And that's what we see on the far left. The aim for destruction. Defund Not the, the left, the far left. The far We're left. being very Again, clear as a, as a progressive, I'll say it, the far left. Um, it is an aim to destroy in a state of rage. 
And if you're in that state of rage, you need to remove yourself from the equation until you can calm yourself to a point where you can come back, circle back, not in a state of rage, whatever that looks like, whatever your tools are. And um, if we move down the ladder to unclean anger, that aims, that has blame and resentment and it aims to hurt or harm another. So unclean anger, blame and resentment that aims to hurt or harm another. We see a lot of that right now on both sides. Clean anger aims to resolve, right? We all experience anger and anger is a beautiful emotion because it tells us something's wrong. And it's either I have transgressed myself or, and that can be allowing another to transgress me. That is a transgression of myself against myself in the allowing of that, or it's somebody else has transgressed me. There's no doubt. We can all agree. There's been many fucking transgressions, especially against African-Americans, Native Americans, women, gay and homosexual communities, lesbians, uh, transgender communities. There's been a lot of transgressions, but unless we look to see where we're at in that, that, that form, are we in a state of rage? Are we in a state of unclean anger? Or are we in a state of clean anger? What is the end result, the goal? There has to be a goal and the goal has to be resolution, conflict resolution. Mm. If it's anything other than that, you will know if you're off in your thinking, you will know that you are aiming to hurt or harm through blame and resentment. You will know you're aiming to destroy in a state of rage. That pound of flesh. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. Thanks for, for unpacking that. Um, and I think, you know, this book that we're, we're talking about the madness of crowds, gender, race, and identity with Douglas Murray. He, he's got a, a great podcast from September with Joe Rogan. Um, this book, my buddies know, like I've just been incessantly, like I'll be listening to it. I'll screenshot, like, just get this book. It's, it's important because it makes sense of what is really illogical and nonsensical of what we're kind of seeing right now. And I think, I mean, it, it's phenomenal. And so I'd love to share a little bit about that. There's any snippet that I could, but this will give you a little bit of a taste and this is about uh, a little bit about Silicon Valley um, kind of feeds into modern day Rockefellers controlling the narrative, the CIA doing their deal. It's kind of, it's what's happening in 2020. Silicon Valley is not morally neutral. As anybody who has spent any time there will know, the political atmosphere in Silicon Valley is several degrees to the left of a liberal arts college. Social justice activism is assumed, correctly, to be the default setting for all employees in the major companies, and most of them, including Google, put applicants through tests to weed out anyone with the wrong ideological inclinations. Those who have gone through these tests recount that there are multiple questions on issues to do with diversity, sexual, racial, and cultural, and that answering these questions correctly is a prerequisite for getting a job. It is possible that there is some guilty conscience at work here, for the tech companies are rarely capable of practicing what they are so willing to preach. For instance, Google's workforce is only 4% Hispanic and 2% African American. At 56%, whites are not overrepresented compared to the wider population, but Asians make up 35% of Google's staff and have been steadily reducing the number of white employees despite accounting for just 5% of the US population. Perhaps it is the cognitive dissonance this creates which makes the valley wish to course-correct the world, since it can't course-correct itself. 
The major tech companies now each employ thousands of people on six-figure salaries whose job is to try to formulate and police content in a way which is familiar to any student of history. At one recent conference on content moderation, leading figures in both companies suggested that Google currently has around 10,000 and Facebook as many as 30,000 people employed to moderate content. And these figures are more likely to grow than to remain static. Of course, this is not the task that Twitter, Google, Facebook and others particularly expected to perform when they were started. But once they found themselves having to perform such tasks, it is unsurprising that the presumptions of Silicon Valley began to be imposed on the rest of the world online, other than in countries like China, where Silicon Valley realises that its writ does not run. But otherwise, on each of the hot-button issues of the day, it is not local custom or even the most fundamental values of existing societies that are being driven, but the specific views that exist in the most social justice-obsessed square miles in the world. I mean, first of all, he's such a, like re listening to his audible, he's just a great storyteller. So it's really a, a pleasure, but I mean, there, again, there's a lot just within that. And I think one thing to recognize is, is, and he does a great job is look, they didn't start out this way. They started out like, let's do this cool thing, search engine, whatever. And then as they grew, they needed to have these other things in place, but they've also as, as he points out, there's several degrees to the left of a liberal arts college, which I went to one. So I'm familiar with how left that may be. And they're controlling the narrative of what we can search. I mean, you go search, anybody can try it. And they do a great job in Social Dilemma. Mickey does a great job. Like you go, like I tried to search something up about Melinda Gates here that was negative and I couldn't find, I could find anything. Yeah, and, things are taken down. Uh, David talked about the David E. Martin talked about that. You know, the the fact that that a lot of this stuff is, there's there's active work being done on the internet to remove science on mass or to remove science around anything that would go against whatever the narrative is, and that activity goes even further, and it's and it's it's completely blatant. But um, Alex Jones, of all people, I was waiting to watch. I'm not. A, <laughs> I don't normally watch Alex Jones, but uh, I've listened to him a couple times on Rogan's, and you know, again, and and there's a lot that he's saying that's correct. There's some things that he said in the past that were not right, but there's a lot that he's saying that is correct. And he has been talking about globalists as a takeover corporatocracies for many years. But one of the things he was saying was he was reading off these headlines, big tech uh, takes down the largest think tank. So there's a think tank at Stanford that includes a couple of these medical doctors that were on Tony Robbins podcast and their findings had found that this in fact was a complete overinflation you know, not diving into any of the conspiracies around it being created or, you know, why we've had, you know, economic shutdown or any of these other topics that go a little bit deeper down the rabbit hole, but simply just stating the facts. Like we have overestimated the potency of COVID-19. It is not what we thought it was. There is no reason to be on lockdown right now. And they posted this video from some of the greatest minds and, and medical doctors in the world. And it's taken down within seconds of being posted on YouTube. YouTube owned by Google, Google in bed with Bill and Melinda Gates and the CDC and the World Health Organization. And these dots are connected. It's not, you know, I'm not, again, just starting to <laughs> connect dots for people. Um, these dots are connected very well in pandemic indoctrination. You see where funding comes from. You see who people, you know, align with and make these alliances. And then this narrative is force fed throughout our exposure to mainstream media as well as social media and online. 
Well, and then you have the quote unquote fact checkers, which. Yeah. Factcheckers.org, uh, PolitiFact owned by Facebook. Snopes. Snopes, Reuters. Uh, they just go down the list. I mean, so for a lot of people, you know, that, that have made it this far, it's quite likely if you go to look at anything like you pull up Plandemic in a Google search. You're not going to find plandemicseries.com where you can watch the video. You're going to find everyone's write-up from the Atlantic, the New Yorker, everything in between stating that this is complete nonsense. Don't bother. It's dangerous and completely untrue. And uh, that's simply not the case. But it's one of the ways they connect the dots in the second pandemic and indoctrination is by showing you the connection points of all these. And it actually turned out to be great because I thought Mickey had made a mistake by releasing the first video with Judy Mikovits because it's just one person. It's an interview who worked with Anthony Fauci for 30 years. I mean, she knows this guy inside and out and I, I trust her and believe a lot of what she's saying, but at the same time, why not just throw out the kitchen sink? And the truth is it actually helped them for indoctrination. It showed just how they would slander. I mean, and they even go into the videos with, uh, who's the, uh, the guy on, um, God, what's his name? John Oliver on HBO. Oh God. They show John Oliver. And before he brings it up, they actually show uh, not video footage, but a a rendition of the flat earth before he goes to comment on this. And you know, he addresses the shutting down of beaches where you would get sunlight and that's actually good for you. And, and because he doesn't have a real answer and no science to back up his claims, he just says, you know, some, some, he makes up some word, you know, hoppy posh or some shit like that, you know, and it's like the end, right? It's a, it's, um, it's the first thing you're going to see when you go to check in on this. And, and all of these fact checkers are all in bed with big pharmaceutical companies and other major corporations that control what we see, what we hear and how we find out if something is true or not. I mean, the web of that, I mean, it goes so deep that that Mickey's next documentary is going to be a lot on this. It's going to be a lot on the media and a lot on how children are being controlled and how children are being force fed a narrative that up until reading the madness of crowds of Douglas Murray, I didn't really understand to the degree that they were in education. And, um, if you're a parent, this will make you pull your pants up and actually sit up tight and start listening because, uh, they're, they're teaching in a way that is to make changing gender not only more acceptable, which is totally cool, but something that is sought after. That's something that is wanted. And they're positioning it in a way with the medical mafia so that if your child was to come to you and say, I think, you know, if if my son Bear came to me and said, "I, I think I'm in the wrong body. I think I have a girl's body. The second I go and tell the doctor that, they say, your first step is acceptance. Anything other than that, you risk suicide. Your first step is to accept that your son's in the wrong body and anything other than that, you risk suicide. That's how they're programming parents to treat this. And moving past that, if you were to say, I think I want to seek psychology or counseling or something along these lines, just to see before we start hormone replacement therapy, just to see like before we make a life changing decision that is irreversible. Child Protective Services can be called. So when I say medical mafia, I'm not throwing that term out loosely. This is what's happening right now. It's one of the, Rogan talked about it in the podcast with Douglas Murray, how the percentage of people of the population on planet Earth that actually is transgender 
is very, it's a very small percentage. It's not to discount their plight or what they've gone through. It's not, not, not that at all. The percentage in schools where people are asking and thinking about going, at least going on hormones is much higher. Well, how is that? It's happening through education. It's happening through what's being taught. And again, you don't have to take my word for it. You watch Plandemic Indoctrination and stay tuned because the very next documentary that's going to come out is going to expose all of this and then some. And of course, Madness of Crowds is available right now where you can see like this is a thing that's happening. And Rogan's not a bullshitter. He's not someone that's going to take, he has three daughters. He's not going to talk about that if it's not real. It's very real. And it's not real uniformly across the globe, but it's certainly real in LA and a lot of other left-leaning places. And there's also, uh, I know that, and I believe it's in LA, maybe California, you know, statewide, but you have to, as a parent with this home learning, you have to sign a document that says you will not spy on what the teacher is teaching your kid. Eavesdropping. You can't eavesdrop and hear what the lesson is. Can't ask your kids about it. And that, that's, you know, <laughs> that's because they're, they're teaching them things that previously were not taught in school you know, a sexual education at a very young age. And I'm, again, I'm progressive, like, fuck yeah, dude, let's see what that's like. Let me see it, what you're going to teach them first, but I'm, I'm going to sign off on that. You know, it shouldn't be a mystery how to put on a condom. It shouldn't be a mystery, like how sex happens and the potential risks that are associated with that. I don't want my kids to have blinders on, but at the same time, if that goes a step further into promoting this, you know, and it, there's another example of this that we, we talked about when we were hanging with the guys at, at uh, your ranch was a normal third grader gets called fat and you know, they got to deal with that. Somebody says, Hey, you know, shut up fat boy. And a bully picks on them. You got to deal with that. If, if a heavier person gets a sex change and identifies as the opposite sex, and now that person's made fun of that becomes a hate crime. There is a power that is witnessed in the untouchability of somebody who does this. So what is the draw, right? There is a draw then from a not great, but normal, or at least in the past, normal degree of how children treat each other. Again, not saying it's right, not saying it's cool to fucking bully. I've been on both sides of that fence. And at the same time, if you can witness it, the power of that in another child who's now untouchable, that's a draw. That's a draw for people. If it's, if it, life is so fucking hard, if I can make it in any way easier that's a draw. And there's so many more examples than that. I mean, really this podcast is, uh, I love talking about it and it's something that I've been really, really deep into, uh, as of late. And at the same time, we're, we're literally scratching the tip of the iceberg on any one of these topics. So the invitation is for people to dive deeper on their own. The invitation is just, just listen to one of these books or watch one documentary. And if it stirs something within you that resonates and you want to know more, it's all here. You know, it, 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 there is more, um, but don't take my word for it. And don't just outright cast what we're saying as, as, you know, rhetoric, but, but look into it a little bit further. And if you do that, you're going to see there's a lot for yourself. There's a lot more happening behind the scenes than we would like to admit to. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because there is a lot of information. Um, I would invite everyone to just sit with what, 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 what feels right? What, what's making sense about what's going on um, in, in all these areas? And again, like there's countless resources that we've talked about today. We've talked about obviously The Madness of Crowds, which again, I think is a phenomenal book. Um, 
another book that you turned me on to is uh, Dr. Martin's uh, Lizards Eat Butterflies, which is a, a, a great piece, which I was going to pull a few clips from that, but I'd love for you just to share a little bit about, I mean, he's freaking, he, he's an interesting um, kind of mix of so much. He's, he's, I mean, when I met him, I had, I had lunch with uh, Aubrey and him and Mickey and in Austin. And the first thing I realized is this is one of the smartest people I've ever met. And at the same time, one of the most spiritual people I've ever met, you know, somebody who spent time with, um, it's, it's a funny thing. I, I think he, he tells this story in the book, Lizards Eat Butterflies, but he talks about how, you know, this is a point that, that Dr. Chris Ryan brings up in Civilized to Death. Like we sit, we sit here and we look around so egoically at all that we've accomplished. And we're like, well, this is the fucking greatest technological race that's ever existed on planet earth. And we've done so much and yeah, yeah, yeah. And life has never been better. It's never been safer. We've never uh, done so well. And it's like, well, well, here we are the sickest we've ever been. Um, we brag about our antibiotics and the ability from that invention to conquer nature. And he's talking about uh, a culture in Polynesia that's so remote that their culture has been untouched by outside influence for the last 40,000 years. And in that they've never needed antibiotics, but also in that they don't have a word for cancer. They don't have a word for diabetes. They don't have a word for heart disease because it never fucking existed. It doesn't exist. And so being in tune with nature, being in touch with the land, eating the food that nature's provided for you, they live long, healthy lives. They didn't need modern science to conquer. They didn't look at themselves as separate. And ultimately, you know, David's book is about programming. It's about how we're programmed, how we've likely been programmed since ancient Sumeria for 12,500 years. Some of this programming and narrative has been laid out for us to create hierarchy, to create separation. Tim Corkin brought that up there. Many indigenous cultures don't even have a word for nature to name the thing that you're a part of is inherently to put it outside of self, mm. right? You, we are not separate from this thing. And yet that is in the language of our religions. It's in the language of, of our science. It's in the language of all kinds of stuff that we are just indoctrinated with that we grow up with. And we just take as fact and the core wound of humanity is separation. It doesn't matter if you don't feel lonely or not. You might feel like, hey, I've got a wife, I've got kids, I've got a couple of close friends. I'm not separated. But if you still look through the lens of God living outside of you as some white bearded dude in the sky and nature being outside of you, you don't have that true connection where you're always held, where, you've, where you're tapped in to that greater knowing and understanding where intuition can guide you and, and help you that path unfold for you like the Lion Trekker's Guide to Life, exactly what Boyd Vardy's talking about. To be able to, to navigate a world full of chaos and find peace and harmony within that, I mean, that's, that's the nature of any great spiritual teaching. And it's only accessible when you realize and have the understanding that there is no separation. The interconnectedness and interlayeredness of all things, all relations, what, what, what they talk about, what Native Americans talk about in the sacred hoop, the web of life, that everything is interdependent upon each other. When that realization is made by the masses, we will live a different world on planet Earth. Until then, these are the things we're going to brush up against. There's going to be more finger pointing, more separation. And as it turns out, that's not a coincidence. That is seeded to the consciousness and controlled through our narrative and how we learn. And has been done so for, for many thousands of years. 
but David really speaks to our programming in that book. And, and, you know, he also does the audible for it. And it's a book that's meant to jar you and piss you off. You know, he's not trying to pull punches. He, he is trying to be in your face with a lot of it, but he's super eloquent and dialed in and highly intelligent. And then as he breaks these down, it just helps you to ask different questions. You know, he's like, my goal of this book is not to replace one belief with another. That's a failure, right? It's to return us to that awe and wonder of what people call the great mystery, right? And to be okay with not needing to figure it all out. But what is my navigation point through this world with peace and serenity and and in a compass that's not being operated by some unconscious program? And it really helps you ask more questions, you know? So I finished that book on Audible and I, it's the only book I've ever restarted the moment it ended and listened to it straight through a second time. Uh, he's absolutely brilliant, you know? And of course he's the bow tie guy in Plandemic Indoctrination. Um, incredibly brilliant in his work and the things that he's studied and picked up on. Um, and at the same time, a well-traveled guy who spent time with many different cultures across the planet and really taken a deeper dive into what it means to be human, what it means to exist here. So uh, I can't speak highly enough about that book, but that's, that's my short end of, uh, you know, Dr. David E. Martin as a person and uh, lizards eat butterflies. Yeah. And it is a, it's a, it's a, it's a book that's definitely along the lines of what I'm trying to share with the podcast. It's that programming piece and where does it come from and how do we, get more in touch with our true essence, our true being, what we're called to do, our intuition, these different ideas. And, you know, we've, you and I, I've learned a lot from you actually within this space, whether it's getting in the cold water, uh, being quiet to say, being out in nature, but going for those walks without headphones on, you know, being out in the yard with your shirt off and in bare feet plant medicines. There are these different ways to tap into something outside the egoic self that gives, that shines a light that gives you the experience, the direct experience of being tied to everything that's happening. And I think he does an amazing job in the book and it's, he's funny as shit too. And you get the audible. So it's like a great, just like story he's telling you and you're right. It's going to ruffle some feathers. Um, but the idea, and I've, I've, I've been beating the drum on this for quite a while. It's like my kind of big awakening came when I started to understand that I didn't know and I didn't have to know. I just needed to sit in the inquiry and could I do that? And sitting in that inquiry, what does it do? Does it land you on an answer? Nope. It, it creates space for more inquiry and to be more curious. And to get into that wonder. I don't sit there all the time by any means. But I know that when I'm not sitting there and I'm starting to come out with the judging mind, ah, I'm getting back into that separation. What can I do? And then it usually starts with me. How can I feel better about how I'm showing up, about who I am? Where's the self-love? Where's the self-acceptance? When I can start there, everything else falls into place. I feel more connected to everything around me. But it starts, again, with taking care of you. And I love you've, you've used this, and I think you, you reference Anahata, but weeding the garden. How can we pull these things out of our life to get more and more clear? That's what was so beautiful for me when I experienced the dieta back in July. It was weeding the garden, certainly technology, but cleaning up the diet. It was pushing all these other things outside my life and getting really clear, working with Hoppe as a means to connect to myself, 
to clear my mind, my energy, and to tap into something that was greater than me. Oh, and by the way, I'm part of that thing too. So it is me. And so it mm-hmm. becomes a little bit of a rabbit hole for sure. But it, it's, again, it's, it's a beautifully written book. It's entertaining. But he brings, and I was shocked because you recommended it. And I was expecting something that was a little bit, I didn't know what to expect, actually. Because I've seen him, I've seen him on pandemic indoctrination. And I thought I was going to be talking about, you know, learning about patents and how fascinating that is. It had nothing to do with that. It was like deeply spiritual. It was like, this guy, he's got all his bases covered. It's beautiful. And I think you and I have been around a a lot of people that have been into that spiritual side, but generally it's so hard to have someone that's so intellectually sound um, to marry those things. And so it's really cool to come across a guy like Dr. David E. Martin. He's one of a kind. Yeah. Yeah. And I I highly recommend your episode with him that just came out for anybody. And again, I'm going to link to Kyle's podcast, just go through and, and have, have a day with it. Um, I did want to, I did want to play another clip from, uh, Douglas Murray. Uh, this is about Lewis Hamilton. A second temporary route that has been found is the route that another racing driver, Lewis Hamilton, recently took. At Christmas 2017, he released a video on his Instagram account. It showed Hamilton saying, I'm so sad right now. Look at my nephew. The 32-year-old then turned the camera phone to show his young nephew wearing a pink and purple dress and waving a magic wand. Why are you wearing a princess dress? Hamilton asks him. Boys don't wear princess dresses, he adds. The boy laughs during this. But this soon all turned deadly serious for Hamilton and his career. An anti-bullying charity condemned him for using his social media platform to undermine a small child. Across the internet, Hamilton was slammed for being transphobic and for embedding dated gender stereotypes. The media picked up on the story and made it a headline news item. An anti-rape charity, which campaigns to help rape survivors, called for the driver to be stripped of his MBE. Hamilton himself swiftly went on social media to apologise for his inappropriate comments and tell everyone how much he loved his nephew. I love that my nephew feels free to express himself as we all should, he said in one message. In another, he said, I have always been in support of anyone living their life exactly how they wish, and I hope I can be forgiven for this lapse in judgment. Again, there's... Should Lewis Hamilton have posted that? And it seemed like it was playful and... um, You know, I don't know Lewis Hamilton, but for the the droves that came out against him, I mean, would he ever feel comfortable saying anything again? Again, I think his intent wasn't to um to belittle, you know, his nephew, but but again, in in the reference to the other driver, it was earlier in the book, there was a race car driver and I'm forgetting his name, but he had had this sponsorship deal. And um as they do, they dig up old tweets, old news stories, whatever they need to, to try to cancel you. And they came up with a news clip of the race driver's dad from, I want to say it was before the driver was even born. And I believe the guy was from Ireland and he used a derogatory word that by all accounts, in Ireland wasn't derogatory, but because he was in the United States, it was considered derogatory. 
they cancel the guy's sponsorship. Now, mind you, this, the guy, it was his dad before he was even born. And so it gets so convoluted. And there's so much pressure on the sponsors. And he goes on to countless different examples of what the cancel culture is doing right now. And there are people that need to be, you know, brought to light that they're doing some shit that's not good. But unfortunately, they're usually the ones who are canceling. Yeah. And that's where the, 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 the weird kind of dichotomy of the whole thing is happening. And again, Lewis Hamilton is just one example, but it was just kind of a benign enough, we got an anti-rape organization coming out calling for him to lose all his sponsorships. It's like, this, is this really have anything to do with rape? Like, why are they weighing in? Yeah, it's, uh, it's it, I don't know. And it, the, it's, the, the way that Douglas Murray really words these things and puts it all together is, is truly special, but it, it points to um, an, an absurd way of viewing the world. You know, what, what is accomplished at the end of this? He talked about that on Rogan's. Who, who, what do you get when you win a revolution? Remember when he said that? Mm. What do you get when you win a revolution? You inherit the rubble of every building that was destroyed, of every city hall, of every fucking home that had a Molotov cocktail in it, that's what you get. You get the ashes. And that should not be our goal. We need to see, we need, you know, the big medicine I got, you know, in, in both North American and Native American spirit wheels in the North, the wintertime, which is reflection, source, God. Uh, it's also the bird energy, so eagle, condor. And that's to see from up high to look down below with crystal clear vision and see the bigger picture. And it's very clear that a lot of the groups that he's mentioning in, in Madness of Crowds and really just this strong push for intersectionality, which is not necessarily what anyone wants, even among feminists, gays, uh, transgender community, or, or race with African-Americans. It's, it's not something they all want to piggyback off each other, but it's the far left's through whatever you, whatever reason you want to say, it's their, their model to say, if we're all stronger together, let's all say we're fighting for the same thing. Right. And that inevitably causes people to step on each other's toes. Um, and again, this is, again, circling back to Mary Margrave, if we are in unclean anger, we are aiming to hurt or harm another. And there is blame and resentment. I mean, that is, that is baseline what we see across the world. If we look even further, it's aims to destroy, you know, and, and, and Brett Weinstein brought this up on Rogan's podcast. You know, when black lives matter first started, it was something that was a movement to help. It was a movement to draw awareness and accountability anywhere there was injustice. And we for sure need that. But what it became without true leadership was more of an anarchist movement. It was a move to destroy anyone in power that was a part of the problem. And through this lens, you can make everyone the problem. And Douglas really points this out in his book. You know, so I, I, if any of what I just said feels off, I encourage you to read it for yourself and listen to it and then make your own decisions based on that. But there's a lot here, you know, it's, um, there's a lot to gnaw on again. It, and I think one question that I keep getting is, is what is the way forward? you know, sitting with that, what is the way forward? What is the way? And it, it's, it, it goes back to any good spiritual teaching. You know, I mean, that, that interlude that you just played from Douglas Murray is, is an interlude on forgiveness, right? And it's not to say like, oh, we just need a sorry 
and that makes up for it. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe there are different ways in a conversation, in a healthy dialectic that we can come to a conclusion of how to help and, um, and make amends, you know, so that, that we can drop um, this blame and resentment that we're holding. You know, what Paul Selig says, anyone you damn, damns you right back. Anyone you hold in the cave, you must stand in darkness with them, holding them there. That's on a spiritual level, but it's on a very visceral level too. If I walk around enraged, is that good for my healthy system that I call a body? No, not at all. If I hold that forgiveness, even, even, you know, one of the, one of the downloads I've had on multiple times through listening to Selig and through working with plant medicines is that forgiveness is about me. It's not about letting someone off the hook Mm. and it doesn't take away from the need for accountability or, um, ownership of the way we treat one another. Right. But we have to use that lens on ourselves too. We have to take ownership over the way we treat ourselves, our own inner critic, our own inner judge. We have to take ownership over the way we communicate with others. It doesn't mean we outlaw shit. It doesn't mean that we say that you can't say that. Right. And that certainly there is nuance to that discussion as well around sure. free speech. I'm not going to say that's black and white either. But at the same time, everything starts with the self. Everything has to. And if we're constantly looking outside of ourselves to blame everything that's happening in the world on others, we're likely not doing a lot of work on ourselves to see through that illusion. It doesn't mean that, that bad things aren't happening. They certainly are. We spent a great deal of this podcast exposing some of that. But how I show up in the world to be the change I wish to see in the world, that's the medicine. That's, that's the way forward. And a lot of what we do to decentralize power structures like international banking systems and you know, what, what Ike and many others call the corporatocracy, it looks a lot like our past. It doesn't mean we're going to have Amish communities that go without electricity and, and nothing against the Amish, but uh, <laughs> I don't want to get canceled for saying that. Yeah. But, uh, you know, like it, it, it does, it, it, it is to, to be sovereign over ourselves, the kingdom, the, you know, there's a great book that I've, that I've recently re-unpacked called King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, and it explores these archetypes, the archetypes of man. And it, it parallels perfect for women as well. It, not only will it help you understand men better, but it'll help you understand yourself better as a woman because you simply substitute king for queen and there you go. So the first, the first thing that the king archetype applies to is your own inner kingdom, self. Then the kingdom of relationship, the kingdom of family, the kingdom of work, the kingdom of community, and all of those things that we are our own inner king. No matter if you're the fucking mailroom guy or if you're the Amazon deliverer driving packages around, you still are the king of your own inner kingdom at work. You might not be the boss of the CEO, but you're still the king of that kingdom and how you show up does matter. Um, There's a lot in working with those archetypes and really seeing through the lens of how do we show up as our best self, the own inner kingdom. And through that, we can soften in the way we communicate with one another. And, and it's not to approach, you know, Shervin said this on my podcast and just blew me away. Uh, fantastic guy, studied Rudolf Steiner, friends with Paul Check out in San Diego and, and just a brilliant guy. You know, his, his parents fled Iran in the 80s and he grew up in San Diego. But I mean, he grew up listening to Rumi's poetry sung in song. The background mm-hmm. music that he had as a child were the songs of Rumi's poems. You know, so just a different approach to life from the get-go. David Avocado Wolf took him to the Amazon when he was young. I think he gave him a uh, David Icke book when he was 12 years old that just cracked him wide open. So he's been on a different, different trajectory. But what he told me, and one of the reasons I've been, I've been okay in speaking about this stuff, is that it's not his job to get all the sheep on board. 
His job as a lion is to awaken the other lions. His job is to protect the sheep. And that's what the warrior does. The warrior protects a higher ideal, the higher ideal that serves the kingdom. And that kingdom of self stretches to all our relations within this planet and outside of it, the cosmos and beyond. So when we look through that lens, the starting point of the way forward is our own inner work. And then it's the work that we do in our families. And it is knowing what's happening in our education systems, why we must place an importance on how we teach our kids and what we teach our kids and how we exercise and take them through their rites of passage so that they don't grow up traumatized boys and acting unconscious or toxic masculinity, but they actually live as men and can lead the world going forward. And, and a lot of that from a community standpoint looks similar to the old as well, where we, we use regenerative agriculture to heal the land, to heal European tilling, tilling and farming, where we grow things organically and biodynamically. And we have a deep connection to our food. We're not reliant upon, I mean, look what happened at the grocery stores when this shit first happened. You know, like we need to create a certain level of independence from that, but it's not just independence. It, it is decentralizing. And you decentralize by centralizing your own means centralizing your own power, centralizing your own food, your own healthy water. If we can start to do these things through consciously planned communities and things of that nature, awesome. If that's outside of reach financially, I get it. You know, this isn't something where I can be like, hey, I've got a five million bucks to throw in on this. I don't. Um, but at the same time, knowing how we get our food, knowing ranchers, knowing organic farmers nearby, supporting them. We vote with our dollar. That was a huge point they brought up in Food Inc. You vote with your dollar. You know, what you pay for, what you subscribe to, what you invest in. And these major corporations listen to that. You know, they show at the end of the movie, Walmart having organic uh, yogurt and some different items. Now they got tons of organic stuff, but that's, you can get into the debate of organic or not. But my, my point is, um, we do vote with our dollar and that does create change. And it changes change because we're, we're not necessarily going to, I'm getting some love here. <laughs> Mona making Mona. an appearance. I love it. She's my little makeout queen. But, um. You know, we're not going to take down big banking. We're not going to take down the industrial military complex. We're not going to take down any of these things without a shift in consciousness that happens first, without an understanding of, of how we heal the earth. You know, and, and that's a big one. The big part of this debate on right and left is like, well, Trump defunded the EPA and he doesn't give a shit and he's putting money into coal and, and uh, big oil and he's helping out his homies that also are multimillionaires and other billionaires and you can say what you want on that, but a lot of what I've come to understand that's not told in the regular narrative is that the EPA was simply a government agency funneling more money back to itself and not creating change within the world at large. And if you watch the first debate where Trump said, I'm about clean water and clean air, that is what we should be about. It's not about global warming. And it's not about uh, the idea that the amount of fossil fuels we're burning is killing everything off. It's the fact that we have you know, an island of plastic in the ocean. It's the fact that we have so much glyphosate in the Mississippi that it's unswimmable now. And it's killed off virtually every fish and animal that lives in it. It's, it's to understand that what we do within our environment has great consequences on the environment. And then how do we fix that? You know, like you read a book like The Soil Will Save Us, this argument of veganism versus meat and things like that. It's like, yo, we are, in we are interdependent upon ruminant animals to heal the soil. And they can, they do, they sequester carbon. Let's plant a billion trees. Let's start to put things back into the environment that not only give back to the earth, but help with 
carbon and ruminants are a big part of that. They're a huge part of that. That's, that's cattle, that's deer, horses, bison. These are the things that not only heal the soil, but help sequester carbon in a working natural ecosystem. Um, and invite people, you know, if you just want to have a grid documentary, that's, that's a bit of a tearjerker, but awesome. It's, um, biggest little farm. It's beautiful. They take this virtually destroyed remote farm about an hour North of LA and turn it into the garden of Eden within seven years. This shit is possible. It's not, it's not fairy tale. And of course, you know, they're producing it for profit and they're serving a greater community because that community gets biodynamic organic food. In addition to that, they create an ecosystem where 89 barn owls show up. Snakes show up, gophers show up. Everything starts to come to the land that is healed. And these are the ways that we need to look to be a part of that. It's not saying everybody needs to become a farmer, but we need to get involved with people that are doing it in this way and literally put our hands back in the earth, you know, start to grow some of our own food, have a connection to the elements and the nature that is around us. Even if we have, you know, the, t- I have the tiniest backyard in the suburbs and Will Tegel was telling me that, 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 I'm creating my own eco field there and it does matter. And the, the things that I plant, the trees that I plant, the food that I plant, that does matter. It connects me back to that. And it's not enough to feed us full time, but just that little bit is a way that I can connect back with source, with the earth, with God, whatever you want to call that. And these are small things we can do, but that decentralized approach, we can, we have to put feet on the ground and actually start with that. And that's where, you know, what we choose to digest from a media standpoint matters and what we choose to digest from a food standpoint matters, how we choose to move our bodies throughout the world matters. All of these things influence ourselves as a tuning fork. And what we tune into is available to us at all times, whether we were conscious of it or not. So tuning into a greater picture, tuning into the intelligence that's around us at all times is a way to stay calm in the eye of the hurricane. It's a way to have personal sovereignty over what decisions I make about what goes into my body and what doesn't. And it's a way to find peace, even in the sea of madness, which in my opinion is just the great stressor necessary for a giant awakening to take place. It is necessary to go through this as a global rite of passage, as a global way to say, there are all these systems that are broken. How do we actually get our feet on the ground and start fixing it and creating a world in which we live in within harmony? within the sacred hoop. That folks is a mic drop. There's, there's nothing more to be said. The lions are waking up brother. Yeah, brother. I love you. God so much. Thanks for being here. Where can people find you? Uh, Kyle Kingsbury podcast. And then at living with the Kingsbury's on Instagram is the, the family social page where we stay connected to people on a, on a platform that I'd rather not be on. <laughs> yeah. I love that you guys have uh, gotten together on that. Cause you, when you left, it's like, brother, don't go. Yeah. I had the intuition pre uh, pre quarantine that this is not going the way that I wanted it to. And in, in terms of uh, just finding out more like a, a fantastic documentary that follows a lot of this stuff that's strictly on Google is called uh, the creepy line. L I N E. I looked for lion like roar and I couldn't find it. So creepy line. Yeah, it's on, it's on Amazon Prime. And, uh, you know, what that's, that was another entry point that first made me say, maybe I should revisit David Icke. Maybe a lot of the stuff he's speaking about is happening. You know, one of the, one of the quotes that he had that he's, he's stated a lot, but he stated on London Real was, if you want to look to the future, look to the East to see what's planned by the globalists. You look to 
China. You look to what's happening there as a means of control through video technology, facial recognition, why 5G towers are actually being put up so they can monitor people in real time, social distancing six feet apart so they can actually tell who's who. Lots of things get in there uh, with the Ike rabbit hole, but. Um, I just think about how we'd always looked at China as being so oppressive and it's fucking happening with social media. It's, it's, and it's fucking crazy. And it's happening with us. And that's what the creepy line points out that Google, this isn't 10 years from now. It's not 20 years from now. It's not a problem for my kids to solve. It's our problem. Google already is the largest surveillance company in the world. They're, you know, growing up in Silicon Valley, I was right down the street from Mountain View where, where their headquarters is. And I remember all of the Google Earth cars driving around. I saw all the driverless cars before I left. The, the Google Earth cars weren't just mapping the earth. They lost in court in a class action lawsuit that showed that they were taking anyone as they drove their car around mapping the world, anyone with an unlocked Wi-Fi router, they were taking all of the information off of and storing. Fuck no. All of it. They were caught. What happened to them for it? They paid a fine. Because our government is bought. They've been bought. They're and in cahoots. And you got you and Dave, Dr. David Martin talked about this too, that how these companies started out and they got in bed with the government and they basically said, yeah, we'll give you everything you need, but just take care of us. And here we have these monopolies, basically. Yeah. And, and the corporatocracy runs. And there's one other book I'll leave people with, uh, and I'm recommending it for you right now. Yeah. It's called The New Confessions of an Economic Hitman by John Perkins. And uh, the Audible's read by, you know, an actor, but it's, it's, it's a fucking eye-opener. I mean, I've been to a lot of countries in service for, for um, the men and women in armed forces. That's how I met Tosh in Kuwait and Iraq. And, you know, I, I always kind of wondered, like, what are we doing here, you know, in, in different places? And I'm not going to get into that. And this is no blame on the men and women that I met. You know, they're in I would be willing to bet 90% of them have no fucking idea what's uncovered in that book. But when you start to piece that together, you can see how the corporatocracy has been trying to globalize the world. And that's when you rethink, maybe Ike isn't wrong. I can't verify reptilian beings and shit like that. Certainly, you know, having experienced DMT and other, other plant medicines, they're, they're, I can't rule that out. But at the very least, this corporatocracy does exist. And there's been things throughout our history, if you go back through the 60s upward, that have really started to cement this power in place. And it's, it's bigger than old money. It's bigger than the Rockefellers. It's bigger than the Rothschilds. And it's together with them. And um, yeah, I think these are, these are some of the finer, bigger dots that people can start to connect on their own, you know, if they're willing. But that's a, a book I highly recommend for people who may be thinking like, you know, this is just a few bad actors and it's not necessarily happening on a global scale outside of the pandemic, you know, but no, this is, this is something that has been happening and it's been happening for many generations and will continue to happen without our awareness of it. Thank you, brother. I love you. I love you, brother. You've been listening to the great unlearn for more information, please check out the show notes or head on over to thegreatunlearn.com for additional episodes and information regarding events and retreats. If you liked what you heard today, click subscribe and share this with friends that might enjoy our platform. Please leave a five-star rating in iTunes as this really helps us spread our message. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Bunker Cal and on Facebook as John Callahan. 
Thanks for listening to The Great Unlearn, and we'll talk soon.